My name is David, and this is The Big Shut-In. So it's Thursday, March 26th, day 11 of our family lockdown. And the national conversation around social distancing and self-isolation and self-quarantining and what should be allowed and where and who should be on lockdown and who should be allowed to continue to go about their business has gotten complicated and heated and there's backlash and there's political backlash. People seem to be taking sides on partisan lines, which is disappointing. But in all this, I think what needs to be remembered about relieving some of the pressure from places like hospitals and doctor's offices is that in addition to these thousands and thousands of new patients who are going to need medical care, all of the other reasons people need medical care anyway are not going to go away. People are still going to break their leg. They're still going to have heart attacks. And by blithely saying, well, we should just work through this and people are going to get sick, people are going to die, that's okay. And I, and I can't believe how many people out there on the internet are saying things like that. You know, if you need to go to the hospital and it's completely overwhelmed, com even more overwhelmed than it is now with COVID-19 patients, what are you going to do? You need to think about that. And I wonder what it must be like to be needing healthcare for other reasons in this time when the system is getting so strained so quickly and is going to get even more strained. What would it be like, for instance, to have a baby right now? Well, I wanted to find out. So I called my friend Megan. Uh, Megan Davidson is a doula here in New York. I know her because she assisted at the birth of both of our children but she's also really well-known and respected within that community. And among many other things, she's the author of the book, Your Birth Plan, a guide to navigating all of your choices in childbirth. That's available now everywhere, or everywhere that's still open. Anyway, here she is. She lives with her husband and two teenage sons in Brooklyn. We don't really let our kids, we're not really letting them out much. The density of people feels still really concerning to me. Like there are not enough people staying home. I feel like when you tell New Yorkers they can go out for walks and get exercise and stuff, it means there's a hundred thousand people in Prospect Park, you know? And there's just you can't social distance in that context. It just it feels better to just keep them inside. So my kids have been really like inside for a couple of weeks. How big is your apartment? 900 square feet. <laughs> That's tight. That's tight for yeah. four full-grown people. Yeah, you know. And Sean and I have to run two businesses out of the apartment, too. So, you know, businesses that we usually don't run out of our apartments. So, so um, how are you doing? 
I'm okay, you know? I mean, I think it comes in waves, right? It's like, sometimes you're just like, I'm home, and that's normal. And then other times you're like, will I ever leave my house again? Then that feels a little more nervous. The less news I watch, the better. Yeah. Yeah, the the news is not good. Um, it it doesn't seem like we're we're cresting or or anywhere near it. Like this is this is going to get worse before it gets better. It seems pretty clear. Yeah, yeah. No, we're definitely still on the on the front end of this process. Well, so so listen, I'm dying to know you. You are still working, yeah? Yeah, I am still working. Um, when when the first sort of I think the first case of Corona hit New York City and I still had 17 clients due before like the middle of June. Um, and three of them gave birth that first week where essentially nothing had changed um, in terms of how the hospitals were operating um, or what, you know, what birth was like for folks in New York City. And then everything started to change. What What did the change? I mean, it's a booking that someone can't cancel, really, right? You know, like, if you're going to have a baby, you're going to have a baby. Um, yeah, I mean, you can't, you certainly can't. There's like, no, there's no, there's no, like, rearranging that. It's not like you can take this vacation next year. I mean, if you're pregnant, you're going to give birth. And if you have a due date anytime, you know, in the next, you know, I don't think we know exactly how many weeks, but many weeks you're going to give birth in the middle of a pandemic. And then it's just a matter of where you're going to give birth and what the conditions are. And that's just the place, you know, over the course, like I went to three births in one week, that first sort of week that New York was starting to have mounting numbers of cases, but they were still like, you know, single digits and double digits kind of numbers. So what, like two weeks ago ish, three weeks ago? Yeah, so people had babies on like March second, and then March seventh, and then March ninth. So all of those was still relatively normal. There were still lots of visitors in the hospital. We have you know whatever normal support people that you could have. There was no real restrictions. There were no signs up. There was no no mention of Corona was happening in any of those contexts. And then the following week. My partner went to three births and the following week, you know, she was starting to see really strict sort of two person policies where you could still have, you know, for example, a doula and your partner or a family member and partner or whatever. But they were starting to sort of say, you know, max to um, you can't trade out. So you can't like also have your brother and sister come meet the baby on postpartum or, you know, things that are relatively typical for people after they've had a baby in a hospital. And then this last week, things started to change even more radically. Labor and delivery and the postpartum floors were starting to become closed to any visitors. And by visitors, I mean also the other parents of the child. So the first hospital system that rolled out that policy was New York Presbyterian Hospital. Um, and that accounts for four major hospitals in Manhattan and Brooklyn. And then... The following day, the two Mount Sinai hospitals, Mount Sinai West and Mount Sinai East, also rolled out the same policy of zero support people. People must be pushing back against that. No? Absolutely. I mean, there's an enormous amount of pushback. Among other things, Adula started a petition 
um, in opposition to it, which is well over half a million people have already signed. Um, the midwives of New York City, of which there are hundreds, came out really strongly in opposition to the policy. And then, um, and then ultimately, Mayor de Blasio went on record saying that the New York City public hospitals would not follow suit. It would not go along with what these private hospitals were doing um, in kicking out all support people. Oh, so so there is a percentage of hospitals in the city that are not pursuing Exactly. It's not unilateral. So there's nowhere in New York City right now where you could bring two people in with you anymore. But there are hospitals where you could still bring in one person. Um, and they are all public New York City hospitals. So they're hospitals like North Central Bronx and the Metropolitan Hospital um, on the Upper East Side or Woodhull Hospital in Brooklyn. You know, I mean, to be clear, like it wasn't OBs and midwives and labor and delivery nurses who made these policies. And I think a lot of them really fundamentally oppose them and are trying to figure out any way that they can to sort of fill some of the gaps that are being, you know, that that now that people are coming in without support people. Um, and at the same time, those folks themselves are, are fundamentally already stretched thin. They're, frankly, they're stretched thin on a good day, and this is not a good day. You know, like, our labor and delivery floors are usually really packed. We usually have nurses who are really being overworked and have too many requirements um, in a given day. And, and then you add to that now that, you know, we're expecting massive, staffing shortages as people become sick and have to be quarantined while they're getting better. Um, and that is a tough combo. You know, I heard that I heard earlier today that one of the hospitals now has three OBs who are out with COVID-19. Those three OBs won't be able to see patients. And so the doctors who are there to see patients will be seeing more patients. They're going to have even less time to spend with individual folks. and. That is a, you know, that feels like some sort of perfect storm, you know. And I mean, I understand, like, we are in the middle of a pandemic. I'm not suggesting that I don't understand the severity of what's going on. But I also feel like one of the things that we really have to guide us in this moment are all of these experts in infectious disease, right? And so when you look at the World Health Organization, you look at the CDC, and then you look at the New York State Department of Health, and when you look at the fact that all three of those organizations are unilaterally saying the same thing, that there is consensus on this idea that people should have support during labor, even in the pandemic. I don't really understand the impulse to go against that, to, you know, make a new policy that goes counter to that. Well, why would you listen to science when you can just have common sense, Megan? What kind of American are you anyway? Right. Right. Yeah, I know. I really love science. I think this is one of my real challenges all the time. But I constantly find myself having conversations with people where I'm like, you and I don't have to even debate this because there's already science, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I I do know. So, and what's the logic there? Who are they, who are they protecting? Yeah. I mean, I, we assume that, you know, if you're making a baby with someone, you, you, you're probably sharing the same air <laughs> already. And then... Yeah, it... that's just a real challenge to me is that immunologically, it, 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 I mean, you know, when you think about germ and infectious disease threat, 
it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I can absolutely unequivocally understand why bringing a doula into the hospital with you, for example, doesn't help flatten the curve, right? Like I live in my home with my family, you live in your home with your people. When I come with you to the hospital as your one person, we've definitely created more points of contact. You know, we're not germ sharing until we do that together. But if you and the partner who you cohabitate with go into the hospital together, the rules already say you can't leave the room, you have to stay in the same room together, these kinds of things. The reality is that you probably create less points of contact because instead of having them have to send more staff in to take care of a person who is otherwise totally alone, they actually can minimize staff contact by having you be there with your partner. You're going to have to be there with them more for all sorts of tasks that could otherwise be accomplished um, by a support person who was in the room with them. Please go get me a drink of water. Whatever yeah, it is. Exactly. Right? Simple things. Right. Can you bring that table closer to me here? Um, I can't physically get up to change the baby's diaper because I'm recovering from birth, but I need somebody to change the baby's diaper. These are all tasks that could easily be accomplished by a person who was already inside your family and therefore very much germ sharing with you, where otherwise you have to call for somebody on the staff to do that. And the way the hospital is set up is that they routinely have to send in different staff members just because of shift changes and, you know, obligations to a whole variety of clients who are there, right? Any given nurse might be assigned to multiple patients at once. When they're not free because they're taking care of another patient, then they send in a different nurse. And that actually creates more points of contact and not just more points of contact for the person who's giving birth, but also for the staff themselves right. who are obviously doing heroic things by going into the hospital every day and putting themselves in a lot of danger because we lack proper personal protective equipment for them. Um, and it actually, it, it, it makes it worse for them too. It doesn't improve the situation for anyone. And it's frankly, heartbreaking, you know, the idea that you would give birth by yourself or the idea that your baby would be born into a world where you wouldn't need them for another day or two, um, even though you were here and could, you know, it's really tough for for everyone. So your your role in all of this yeah. is obviously different. Are you just are you just on the phone now with people? Are you doing no you must not be doing any home visits at all at this point, yeah. right? Yeah, so everything I'm doing is, you know, virtual and remote, um, which is, is happening on sort of two levels. Um, one, because I obviously can't be in the hospital with people and because going out to prenatal visits or things like that doesn't line up with the stay-at-home order from the governor. And also, too, because in my case, the majority of my clients' due dates in the somewhat near future have all fled New York City and are giving birth in hospitals in other states. And so I, I will be remote also because I will be literally hundreds of miles away from them when they're giving birth. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. In response to these kinds of changes, and also just an increasing sense that the hospitals in New York City are themselves becoming overwhelmed um, and that the labor and delivery floors are getting more and more cases of you know, people who are positive for COVID-19 and what that might mean about the exposure for the staff and things like that. Um, I have clients who have moved 
their birth locations to Boston and Connecticut and Baltimore and Pittsburgh, um, maybe Cincinnati. They're still on the fence. And I've had multiple clients switch to a home birth also. So, well, that was my next question. My clients have changed their plans. (laughs) That was my next question is, you know, is, is a home birth possible in all of this? And how would that work? Home birth is possible. Um, and there are certainly a whole bunch of really amazing home birth midwives who serve New York City. That said, the number of home birth midwives who service New York City does not greatly exceed the number of people who are normally having home births in New York City, unrelated right. to a pandemic. So even with all of our home birth midwives essentially working at their full capacity, and most of them are completely booked for months at this point, you know, home births typically only accounts for maybe 1% of people who are giving birth. So even if you know, even if several people, even if dozens of people manage to get themselves in with a home birth midwife, there's still about 140,000 people who give birth a year in New York City. And so most people either have to navigate one of the hospitals here or potentially navigate a hospital somewhere else. I mean, if I were a hospital somewhere else, I have to say I, I would be very reluctant to take in a patient from New York City at the moment. So we are increasingly seeing that. So, for example, um, Massachusetts, my understanding is, I've only heard this from clients, I haven't actually verified it myself, but my understanding is that the Massachusetts Department of Health has now said that care providers in Massachusetts should assume that patients transferring from New York City should be considered COVID positive in terms of needing to be quarantined. Um, and should not be seen in person for two full weeks. Um, and many of the practices and hospitals um, in Massachusetts, I am hearing, are no longer taking people transferring out of New York City. And I think that's increasingly the case in the sort of tri-state area. Like, I think Connecticut and New Jersey are becoming harder places to transfer care to. But I have had people, like I had some clients drive to Pittsburgh yesterday. They did the math on sort of the percentage of people infected in cities within about five hours of here and decided Pittsburgh was their best bet. And they will be in quarantine before they can be seen. So I keep having this conversation with my clients where, you know, this this very there's this very vivid image of the curve that I think all of us are familiar with at this point, right? All these sorts of image of what it looks like to flatten the curve, what it looks like if we don't flatten the curve. And I feel like for all my clients right now, I've been talking to them about, you know, as they leave New York City, they're kind of just trying to plot themselves as early on that curve as they can, right? Like, we don't have any reason to think that Boston won't also be hard hit or that Baltimore will somehow escape getting COVID-19 or that, you know, Pittsburgh won't be affected by this. But we do have good reason to think that those places might be sort of the way we were a few weeks behind Italy that those places might be a week or two behind us. Um, And so all my clients are kind of just trying to plot themselves in that curve in hopes of being on the earliest end of it that they can be at this point. You know, let me ask you one more thing that occurred to me. You interact professionally, I'm sure, with a lot of doctors and 
midwives and, you know, healthcare professionals. Do you, what have you heard about what it's like inside city hospitals this week? It's bad. It's bad. Um, You know, I think uh, the last time I checked in with some friends of mine who are in labor and delivery nurses, it, it was worse than I thought it would be. What are you hearing? You know, massive shortages of personal protective equipment. And, you know, these are, I'm, I'm checking with people who work on labor and delivery specifically. So I'm not checking in with like people working in ICUs where I'm sure it's even harder, but, you know, people, lots of people presenting in labor who are then testing positive for COVID-19, many of them asymptomatic, but some of them very much symptomatic and really acutely sick, needing to deliver babies prematurely via cesarean you know, and have those babies in isolation and the NICU because of possible, you know, COVID-19 in the babies then. Staffing shortages, staffing shortages that are expected to get worse. And it's really tough. I mean, most of these private hospitals in particular are making millions or billions of dollars a year in profit. And the fact that they have really failed to be prepared for this, that they failed to, you know, buy enough of this equipment or anticipate the need to keep their staff safe is is really tough. I mean, I worry a lot about my friends who have to go into these hospitals every single day, you know, who don't have the privilege of staying at home or working virtually um, and who have things like just a little paper mask over their face to protect them, which we know isn't very good protection, you know, Um, especially not when you're in such intimate contact with people's bodies and their body fluids. You, know, you can't socially distance as a nurse on labor and delivery. That's not a thing, you know? Um, so it's really tough. I mean, it's, it's just, I mean, you hear stuff like this and it's, it's, it's hard to fathom, you know, somebody going into a situation like, like birth where there's just, you know, gore. I mean, there's fluid everywhere. I mean, you know, I mean, whatever, whatever, you know, I don't whatever's in this person. <laughs> I mean, it is mess, right? I mean, there's, yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's no way that, you know, but to go into a situation like that with someone you, you know, is carrying a potentially deadly virus and not have a mask and gloves to wear. Like yeah. I can't, I can't. I mean, and not just like, and really, you shouldn't just have a mask and gloves. You should have, like, full body protection and not, like, you know, a paper mask or just, like, you know, the kinds of gloves you use to, you know, perform a task in a hospital room that would not require sterility or things like that. No, I mean, it's really... And it also is so hard for... I mean, I feel for everyone in this context really deeply because also, like... Think about what labor and birth was like, and then imagine having to wear a mask that whole time, because the pregnant people are also all wearing masks. Like, you're trying to breathe through some of the hardest things in your life. In some cases, you're trying to push, and you're taking huge, deep breaths in and trying to bear down on your baby, and you're having to do that all with a mask on your face, you know, because not wearing the mask puts you at risk of potentially contracting a deadly virus. And, you know, remember that pregnant people are considered a high-risk category for COVID-19. Um, like, it's, it's a bad situation for everyone there. I mean, when I look at, like, you know, in China, they did, you know, they built some temporary hospitals. And among the things they were able to do was take COVID-19 patients to specific hospitals for 
people who were positive. And that did seem like it was a much better situation than, you know, I don't know how New York would even make something like that happen. I mean, I suppose if somebody had had the foresight a month ago, you might have been able to start trying to set up some of the hospitals as like, you know, like where birthing people would go, but not going to all of them. And then, you know, test rapid testing people and like moving people if they were positive to try and keep non-positive people separated from people who had tested positive. But obviously that's, there's no, you know, that's not happening here. And that's really tough because going into these hospitals is, I, you know, I, the hospitals themselves are very worried about partners, for example, being a potential source of sickness for the staff. And I totally sympathize with that while also feeling like it doesn't really match our sense of the science because they're just as contagious. I mean, you know, they're just as likely to have the virus as the partner they're coming in with. But um, I would think more likely. I would think the staff, I mean, yeah. if you were, if, you, if this is your, your fourth delivery of the day and two of them <laughs> were COVID positive, yeah. And you didn't have, you didn't have sufficient protective gear, right? I mean, how are you not going to transmit that to num- the fourth person? And then the hospitals, you know, they're not testing people, they're not testing the staff beyond just checking them for symptoms. In part because basically everyone is presumed exposed, so they they can't just like quarantine everybody who gets exposed because, you know everybody has been exposed. And so then it's just, you know, they're taking your temperature twice a day to make sure you're not, you don't have a fever. That said, we know that some people have gotten COVID-19 and not had a fever, you know, like, so in and of itself, it's not even like the greatest testing system. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's really tough and I feel for people because I think, you know, a lot of my clients are worried about a whole bunch of different things, right? They're worried about understaffed hospitals. They're worried about being alone, they're also worried about getting sick by going into appointments um, or being seen, getting a routine ultrasound or going in and giving birth and coming home with a baby and also a virus, you know. Have you heard of anyone just going off the grid and saying, I don't want to, I can't do that. I can't find a midwife. We're just going to bite down on this chair leg and do it right here in the living room. I mean, is that is that a decision people are making? Yeah, people call it unassisted birth, unassisted home birth, or sometimes people call it free birthing. And I'm, you know, I'm positive that it is a decision some people will make. It's not a decision that any of my clients have made. Um, I, I actually, I, I won't work with people who are planning unassisted birth. It's one of the things that I don't do. Um, so you will definitely, be, I mean, I'm sure there will be people. And if you look at the statement from the midwives in opposition to this policy, one of the things that they, one of the things they write about is a, a fear that more and more people will um, avoid giving birth in the hospital by giving birth at home without assistance and how much more dangerous that will be. I mean, I, I would particularly worry about, I mean, your clientele also by definition is, is, uh, you know, are, are privileged, right? I mean, they're people who yeah. could afford to hire a doula and do the research to find one. And uh, it, I would worry about somebody. I mean, I would think that the people, you know, Im- immigrant communities, things, you know, pe- people who are, you know, would just be like, you know, whatever. Grandma did this in the living room. That hospital's filthy. Let's just do this. It, it, it's 
a very challenging time to be having a baby in New York City. And, and frankly, I, I suspect very rapidly it's going to be a very challenging time to be having a baby in the United States more broadly. You know, that, that the changes that we're seeing here and the challenges we're seeing here, some of them are unique to New York, um, but many of them probably will not be. Just two days after this interview was recorded, Governor Andrew Cuomo issued an executive order that all hospitals in New York State should allow one non-medical staff support person to be present at the birth of all babies. The private hospital systems mentioned in this interview indicated that they would comply. My name is David Hoffman, and The Big Shut-In is a production of Race Car Radio. If you have feedback for me or a story that you would like to tell, please feel free to email me, thebigshutin at racecarradio.com.